This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, as a professor, radio host, and writer, I'm intrigued by the processes of creating and disseminating knowledge. Journalists and academics, in my opinion, have a lot in common. Passionate writing, careful research, and the hope to impact our society through carefully crafted arguments rather than through 140-character-long messages are just a few examples of that commonality. Now, another commonality is that journalists and professors both have a complicated love-hate relationship with digital technologies, yes? Writing an article is more fun on a PC than a typewriter, and yes, you can reach global audiences now through the Internet. But digitization has also dramatically increased the supply of articles, often with negative effects of quality and price. Many newspapers are struggling, and the work of journalists, a pillar for any functioning democracy, is under attack. So journalism and reporting is the topic of my show today. At this point, it's my big pleasure to welcome my second guest today, that is Matt Boji, the former Chief Technology Officer of Axios and Executive Director of the New York Times R&D Lab. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Christian. Great to talk to you. Hey, Matt, your background is in tech. Um, Talk about how you ended up in the world of journalism. Sure. Um, Yes, as you say, I I started out in technology. I was working at Accenture, where one of my second, I think my second project while I was there was actually working for uh, some NBC-owned and operated stations. We were doing content management systems. Um, And given that and my background at home, uh, my dad, uh, my whole life was a reporter. He worked in a sports desk at a local newspaper. And so I'd always just sort of had it in my DNA, I guess. And once I got into it professionally, uh, it was just really exciting. It was being able to take some of the skills that I had learned in tech and being able to apply them to some problems out in the real world that would actually affect how society functions. And that just was a huge win for me. Um, So I never really looked back. Um, Since then, I consulted with publishers and news organizations throughout my career at Accenture. And then, as you said, then on to the New York Times and on to Axios. And I never really looked back. Could you write a great story yourself, or are you more of a process and technology person who brings out the best in others, in other words, leverage the the skills of the writers? (laughs) Uh, Definitely the latter. Um, I I get a big kick out of being the enabler in those situations, being able to build the tools and the processes that make it easier for reporters to do the work that they do. Talk about your time with the New York Times R&D Lab. Uh, Most of our listeners, I assume, did not even know the Times had an R&D Lab, what were the goals of that department? Sure. Um, yeah, so I was there for about six years. Our, our goal there was to look three to five years out into the future and to identify technology trends that would change either how people consumed information or how that information was gathered and processed. Um, that's a pretty big remit. And so what we were allowed to do is really go wherever we, we thought the, the tech or the process changes would take us. Um, it was a really fascinating opportunity. We did everything from content management system and technology, uh, sort of infrastructure planning uh, innovation, all the way up to working with UAVs and drones for how they would affect how uh, photographers and videographers would capture stories. 
So talk a little bit more about content management system. Uh, in the first half of the show, Jeremy Gilbert was talking about their content management system that they had developed at the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to get a sense of, uh, it's such a vague term of well, how you use the content management system and what was, what was hard to develop that one. Exactly, yeah. I mean, when we were looking at it, I think you know this isn't an original idea, uh, but certainly we've heard it a lot in journalism circles that content management systems are your first editor. The interfaces that you're presented with, the control that you're given, the constraints that that implies on your process are all things that will affect the outcome of your writing. So uh, we really looked at it from a perspective of how can we make a content management system not only something that is extremely flexible from a technology perspective, that is, how do we upgrade them more efficiently? Uh, what we were looking at was a uh, process, and this was a few years ago, where lots of different publishers were thinking of sort of revamping their content management processes. And it would be a process where you go through a, a requirements gathering process and then a selection and then installation and configuration. And generally those took anywhere from a year to two or more. And by the time you were done with the project, the state of the art had moved on. You were already two years behind. So we were trying to figure out, are there ways that we can make these things more modular, um, compose them of different smaller components that can then be swapped out or changed more quickly. Um, and then second, what are the technologies that we could apply that would help to uh, advance the, the cause of journalism on a more day-to-day -day basis? What are some things that these systems can do that would support a reporter as opposed to getting in their way? So uh, we did a couple of experiments around how uh, excuse me, AI, artificial intelligence, could be used to sort of read along with a reporter as they were typing their story. Um, suggesting uh, different content tags that might go into it, confirming that the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu that you were talking about was, in fact, the uh, Israeli politician, um, and potentially even going further and saying things like, you seem to be quoting a source that you've quoted several times in the past. Uh, maybe this is an opportunity to look for a different angle, or um, the thing that this person is saying in your article contradicts something that they said six months ago, and that might be an interesting area of research for you to go down. Um, and so from our perspective, it was anything that can mediate the process of creating a new story. So whether it's the writing, uh, whether it's uploading photos and managing the imagery around it, uh, whether it's interacting with your graphics department and making sure that the great visuals that they're doing uh, are compatible and, and easily embeddable, um, those are the components that we were really looking at for that system. I mean, that's a fascinating use case, uh, the one that you're describing that I'm, I'm, I'm typing on my... Uh, article about Israeli peace, and as I'm writing Netanyahu's name, uh, a fact check is done. Is, is, is the guy still the prime minister? Uh, it looks at other sources I've used in the past. Is that literally while, I mean, just to bring this to life, I'm like uh, you're typing in your word editor, if you will, and as you're typing, these, this tagging, these background checks are all running automatically. They're just kind of hovering over your writing, and natural language processing is kind of looking in. Um, dissecting what you're writing? Exactly. That was the concept, yeah. Um, and to clarify, you know, in R&D, our role was to build prototypes. We were showing what could be possible. And so in these cases, we didn't obviously take it all the way down to fruition and working with the newsroom and their, their thousands of, of uh, contributors. But what we were able to do was to show the first building blocks of that, that you could use these new techniques, natural language processing, machine learning, um, to better support the reporter in the work that they were doing. And so we got as far as a text editor that was fairly straightforward and simple, but it did exactly what you were talking about. As you were typing, it would notice, it would notice uh, names, locations, names of companies, and would automatically tag that metadata so that you could find it later on. 
That's fascinating. Uh, personal question. I mean, what did your dad say? I mean, I, again, pardon. I mean, you, you, you come. You, you mentioned in the beginning you come from a journalism family, and we know typically when when technologies, especially if introduced by by, by smart but sometimes too smart consultants, they they they, they hit a little bit uh, a resistance on the user side. What did either your your dad, but in general the the the, the journalists who were supposed to use this at the New York Times? What was their reaction to the the system like that? It was certainly mixed. I think on the positive side, uh, especially with the journalists that we were working with at the Times, they were used to the process they already had where they had to mark a story at the end of its editing, you know, according to the entities that were in it. And so they saw this as saving some time with something that they were doing. Um, and certainly any of the, the work that we did that could be seen as supportive, uh, you know, not replacing a reporter, uh, not writing the story for them, but allowing them to do more with their time was was seen as something that was very positive. Um, some of the other areas where I think we sometimes would get some negative reactions are some of the things that we're seeing in, in lots of different places now, the impact of, of social media, of, of tweeting stories rather than writing them and publishing them, for example. Uh, I know, you know, to, to take it back to my dad for a second, I know that's something that he kind of drills into his reporters now that he's an editor and make sure that if there is a big story, like save that for the paper and tease it as opposed to giving away the, the store for free on Twitter. So when you look at the newspaper business now or when you joined the New York Times, uh, from the perspective of a management consultant, uh, mm -hmm. how is, is that, are there things that are jumping to you in terms of efficiency improvements, quality improvements, improving the willingness to pay of the users by improving the reading experience? It lies in the nature of any somewhat non-manufacturing style business that it is uh, it takes great pride in craftsmanship artistic and creative skills and mm -hmm. there is typically a healthy maybe but a, a real tension between those types of attitudes and the ideas of management consultants or for that matter business school mm -hmm. professors who like who like process who like technology uh, who like it the german way if you wish exactly yeah um, i think there's a couple of things i think you know as i look at it from the sort of consultant mindset uh, the business model is certainly something that I think requires a lot more attention. I think the adjacency model that has served the the industry well from, say, the 50s up through the early 2000s may have been a bit of an anomaly. Um, I, I think ultimately being able to advertise to an audience isn't necessarily the most sustainable or, or even the most uh, aligned with your goals uh, way of making money. Um, I actually look at what The Guardian is doing as something that is, is heading in a, in a much better direction where they're... Uh, on the one hand, they have a trust, obviously, which is uh, an endowment that can support their operations through tough times. Uh, and they've also been focusing primarily on membership as the way that they think about how they reach their audience. And I think if, if you really think about the way that we subscribe today to any publication, and Times is a great example of this, you know, it's less about the strict trade of value. You know, um, you know I, for example, subscribe to the New York Times on the weekend, and I think the thing that I most consistently do is the crossword. Um, I'm certainly paying a lot to do the crossword. <laughs> but the other part of that is that I really believe in the mission that they have, and I want to be sure that I'm supporting them in a way that can help sustain their operations. And so I think the more that we can focus on that as the, the way that we uh, support our journalists, uh, the better off we might be. Because the, the link between the content that we're creating and the, the advertising that's adjacent to it has always been very tenuous and one that I don't think is, is sufficient anymore to really sustain the industry. Was that business model innovation piece part of what you worked on in the R&D labs? It was. Uh, we were looking at a couple of different ideas where we could take some of the content we had created and repurpose it for other uses, 
we saw a huge value in the archive, being able to tag photography and earlier stories for research and reuse purposes. Um, and I think a lot of organizations um, sort of forget the value of the historic information that they've collected. There's a lot of interest in that sort of thing. And so one of the goals of the, the editor project that we were talking about a moment ago was to make sure that anytime we created something in the newsroom process, it was properly tagged so that we can go and find it for lots of different reuse purposes later on. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Terish, and I'm chatting with Matt Vogie, the former Chief Technology Officer at Axios and Executive Director of the R&D Lab at the New York Times. And we're talking about how those R&D labs played around with different business models uh, for, for journalism. Uh, is there, Matt, I was wondering if you would be willing to share an innovation with us that uh, you have been working on in the R&D labs of the Times that were just just failed really bitterly, or is, is that something <laughs> that should not shared, be shared with anybody? Any any uh, story that comes to mind? Yeah, actually, we, we spent a fair amount of time working on some, some uh, 3D work. This was probably back in 2011, 2012, when 3D television sets were all the rage, all the different manufacturers were coming out with their different systems with glasses that you would wear at home, those sorts of things. Um, and we worked with our graphics desk to do an animation of uh, Mariana Rivera, the former Yankees pitcher, sort of showing his control. And we built a whole like living room of the future demo area where you could come and, and watch that. Um, and while we didn't necessarily think that 3D was going to be a, a savior of the industry at all, I mean, all of our research showed that everything we were doing was eventually going to just accrue on top of it. So this is going to be one other that we worked on, I think even I was surprised by how little impact uh, that technology had on the world. That said, you can now see the fruits of some of that in augmented reality and virtual reality experiments that are now becoming much more prevalent out in the world and, and, and certainly something that the Times themselves put a lot of effort into. Talk more about uh, augmented and virtual reality because I think it's a really interesting question to think about how much of the modern newspaper for that for lack of a better term, how much modern media is simply replicating the good old paper and now doing it digitally versus how much it is taking advantage of the digital technology and providing a more immersive reader experience. So how mm -hmm. are the, these kind of the augmented and the virtual reality pieces playing out? Yeah, I think if you look at the Venn diagrams of the use cases that augmented and virtual reality have and those that a, a typical journalistic entity is trying to put out into the world, the overlap there is very small. There are very few kinds of stories, I think, that really work in a, in a truly immersive, excuse me, immersive situation. Um, and I think that trying to force more stories into that because this is a new and interesting thing often just damages both sides. It makes the technology look less interesting because the story presentation isn't fantastic. And it takes uh, assets and resources away from reporting that otherwise could have been done in a more um, germane way to the, the subject matter at hand. Um, so I think with, with augmented and virtual reality, I think those overlap much more in the gaming and entertainment spaces. And that's where I think that makes a lot more sense. Um, that said, you know, it was again something we did some research on when we were there in the lab. Um, and we were looking primarily at things like augmenting spaces and surfaces. Uh, so for example, being able to use uh, the technology that you might have in a kitchen of the future to guide you as you went through a recipe to show you uh, exactly how to, to chop that onion or how big to make the cubes of steak as you made your stew um, and to guide you through which ingredients went in at what steps. 
Heck, it could even fill out a crossword crossword puzzle for you, right? <laughs> well, yes, but what would the fun be in that? <laughs> so, but I, I think it's interesting. I have, as a reader, I'm a big fan of the German news magazine, Der Spiegel. And I noticed in the online edition a couple of years ago, they started with virtual content, virtual reality content. And I had the same reaction as, as you just described, that it was a little bit a hammer in search of a nail, where I, I love reading their just pure text stories. I, I don't need any of the visuals. I just I, I feel it's almost distracting from the content. Uh, but the production costs for these kind of these uh, virtual reality, augmented reality pieces, they must be dramatically higher, aren't they? They certainly are. I mean, it's also new technologies, and so the workflows and processes haven't quite been hammered out as well. So they are, you know, to your earlier point on management consulting, much more inherently inefficient than the typical graphics processes. But I do think that we're beginning to see those technology costs come down. Um, a lot of the, the technology that we're using right now for things like augmented reality is coming from the world of gaming. Um, so using things like the Unreal Engine to create new virtual worlds that have these objects in them, for example. Um, and I also think that some of the, te the, excuse me, the lessons that we're taking from those are things that can be applied to much more traditional presentation. Uh, for example, working with the graphics desk at Axios, I mean, the visuals that were put together there were really fantastic and almost antithetical to what you would have in uh, augmented reality. They needed to fit in a very small space in the, in the feed of stories as they went by. And so there, the focus was really much more on how can we tell this story very quickly and succinctly to get you to what you need to know in this particular visual, but then give you the controls and the interactivity that if you were interested, you could go much deeper and you know learn something in there that you might not have otherwise. And I think those techniques really translate very well. Matt, uh, talk more about your time at Axios and maybe just start out for the listeners not familiar with Axios, kind of explaining what it is. Certainly, yeah. Uh, so Axios uh, launched two days before the inauguration of President Trump here in the United States. Uh, it was founded by Roy Schwartz, uh, Jim Vandehei, and Mike Allen, uh, who were all at Politico prior. And the goal was to get people smarter faster. Um, if you see the, the site on Axios.com, it's a mobile-first experience, and it's designed to mimic uh, the experience of going through a social media feed, where every story is complete. Uh, you don't have to click off on a headline to go to a story page. You can read the entire thing right there as you scroll through that feed. And the goal was to make sure that we could get people the information that they needed to be smart about what's going on in politics, technology, business, um, as efficiently and as quickly as possible. And that ethos really went through everything from the way that we edited to the, the number of words that we would allow above the fold. We do have some stories that go a little bit deeper, but they can be expanded in line so that you don't have to go anywhere else. Uh, and as I said, it also lent itself to the way that we thought about how we do visuals, not wanting to do big presentations that took a long time to really understand the point of, but something that got the message across while still allowing a user to go a little bit deeper. That must have been an interesting contrast to your experience at the New York Times, where with the Times you have an old established newspaper with, with a long and very proud legacy that has moved into the digital world. And then in Axios here you're starting a publishing platform 2015-2016 with mobile, with everything digital fully in line. What allows you to, what, what can you do things if you're born digital compared to if you are transformed into digital? Oh, it was a fascinating process. You're absolutely right. I mean, with, with no legacy to start from, we were able to move very quickly and launch a new site with new um, 
journalistic processes and editorial processes uh, in just under five months. It was really a, a remarkable opportunity. And then very quickly, we're able to pivot and create some of our own tools the following year, uh, again, in, in almost record time. It was really fascinating. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. But the big difference there was not just that these, these companies had different amounts of, of, say, archive or history, but also just the culture around it. Uh, it was almost baked into everyone who works at the Times, and I'm sure it still is, that uh, before you pitch an idea, before you go and talk to, to a colleague about something you might want to do, you ask yourself this internal question, is this really Timesian? And I think in many ways that can be very limiting because some of those ideas might be places that the company wants to go, but they've internalized this idea that, that the Times stands for quite a lot. Um, I have been really encouraged lately to see that that's begun to be a bit more flexible with things like the, the uh, New York Times Magazine, uh, especially some of the, the other work they've done more in print, like with the kids section, for example, trying to reach out to new audiences and new readers, uh, which I think is exactly where they need to go. Um, the main difference I would say is that at the Times, it took a long time to convince people that your idea was something that we should take forward, whereas at Axios, uh, the time was mostly spent trying to winnow the list of ideas down to those that we could actually afford to do in, in the time that we had available to us. Um, you know, it was it was a very different place of trying to do almost everything at once. And, uh, yeah, certainly a very quick shift in the focus of, of my work. With the luxury of hindsight and the wisdom of a management consultant, what what advice would you have kind of, what, what do you conclude for that for a company like like the Times at that time or for any company right now that is facing that uh, tension or that dilemma, to, to what extent they embrace digital technology, to what extent they disrupt themselves, uh, do I hear some benefit from, from you basically saying that, well, it might have been better if we would not have been the R&D labs, but we would have been like a spin-off out of the times to, to avoid that kind of that cultural force that you were describing? Oh, actually, no. If anything, I would say that we needed to be more closely embedded. Um, to, to, to be true, contagious? Exactly, because the true innovation that, that we were trying to, to promulgate ultimately needed to be agreed upon and seen by the people who are working on product day-to-day -day or working on editorial tools or even in the newsroom. Um, and, and sitting apart as we did, uh, it was very difficult to get those conversations in the right place to the right people, whereas if we'd had an opportunity to collaborate much more closely, I think we could have brought some of them to, to fruition much sooner. And frankly, I think to, to answer your question in a different way, that's exactly where I would guide any publisher who's thinking through these issues right now. You know, um, creating a bespoke uh, innovation team is good because it gives that team some some space and some time to kind of think ahead and think about what's happening next. The trouble is that they don't do that in a way that is informed by the current product roadmap. And, and that's really where I think the most interesting innovation happens. It's taking something that you had already planned to do and doing it a little bit better, doing it a little bit more future focused, doing it a little bit more bulletproof so that it, it can carry you forward in a much more tangible way. Now, Axios very quickly had very strong revenues. Uh, what did you do? <laughs> uh, we hired fantastic reporters. <laughs> I think if you look all the way down uh, from Mike Allen to Dan Primack and you know, Freed all the way to folks like Alexi McCammon who have come on more recently, um, everyone there knows their beat really well. Um, I, I talked to Nick Johnston, our editor-in-chief, a lot about his, um, his interview process because many people would ask, like, how do you get people to write short? How do you convince trained reporters who've been through, you know, typical inverted pyramid training 
to come here and write 200 words instead of 800. And the thing that really surprised me is that he said most of them want to. Um, a lot of the B matter that comes at the bottom of the story is put there by rote. Uh, the, the point of the story is really done in, in the first 150, 200 words. And if you can give someone an opportunity to be really smart, really fast, and and cut that down to just the, the nugget of what they want, uh, it's better both for the reporter and for the reader. And so I think that really was the, the secret sauce, was, was getting some really smart writers in the door and giving them free reign to just focus on what was truly important. The Secret Sauce, shared with you by Matt Borgi, the former Chief Technology Officer at Axios and the Executive Director of the R&D Lab at the New York Times. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.